Let's read the Bible together again this morning. Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 7, rather. Micah chapter 7. Hey, as you're turning there, uh, Dad's been telling stories on me all week, and I'm not going to tell you any doozies right now, but I do want to talk about my parents for just a second. Um, When my parents came to Maranatha, uh, people started calling my mom, Mom. And uh, I got a little jealous about that. She's not your mom. <laughs> She's not a campus mom. She's my mom, okay? And I got a little, a little defensive about that. But I'm thankful for uh, the ministry that my mom has here on campus. And a lot of you have gotten to know uh, my mom over the years. And some of my earliest memories of my mom were uh, walking down the stairs in our family's parsonage, or in the family's parsonage, yeah, in Pennsylvania, and seeing her sitting on the old couch in front of the picture window, uh, poring over her Ryrie Study Bible that was so highlighted and had gone through so many times that it was now held together by duct tape. And so I would see my mom meeting with the Lord almost every morning uh, when I would wake up. And so her example has instilled within me uh, a love for the Word of God. And so to this day, typically around 5.15 on Sunday morning, I'll get a text from mom that says, I'm praying Uh, for the ministry of the Word this morning and some encouraging tidbits about how exactly she's praying. And so I got to tell you, uh, students, that my mom's uh, bubbly, joyful countenance that you see day in and day out, I have seen it my whole life. And people have come to me and they say, is your mom real? Like, is that smile thing? And is all of that real? I'm like, yeah, it's real. Like, from my earliest days, I would get up in the morning and she would say, good morning, David. Isn't God so good? And and that's, that's really who she is as she pursues uh, joy and happiness in Christ. Dad also instilled um, a love for the Word of God in me. Didn't have the, good morning, David, great to see you. Um, but he did instill a love for God's Word within me and all of his kids. In fact, we would take road trips as a family. We'd go see grandma, uh, grandparents, wherever they were living. And on the road trips, to pass the time before we all had screens in front of us, what would we do? Well, we would grab our Bibles. And dad would say, okay, kids, read to me any two consecutive verses between Matthew and the end of Revelation. And I'll try to finish it for you. And then I'll try to give you chapter, book, and verse. Guys, my dad can do that. Um, He has the command of God's word. He's memorized it. Now, sometimes in the Gospels, you can trip him up uh, because they're so similar. And so if you want to get him after chapel, bring up a verse, uh, read him a couple consecutive verses, make it a hard passage from the Gospels and see if you can get him. Or I think the other rule was no grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because every book starts that way. Uh, My parents have a love for the word of God and they have pass that on to their children as uh, part of our heritage. And so we thank God for that. And so coming now to the word of God uh, together this morning, Micah chapter 7. We're going to take a quick dive into this prophetic book. And as we do so, we're actually jumping toward the end of Micah's message. And please understand that the words that we read this morning are Micah's reflection on a ruined society. One that is ready to collapse from spiritual and political decay. And so let's read the text, Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7 this morning. And again, Micah is reflecting upon a ruined society. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, 
as the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man has perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asks, and the judge asketh for a reward, and the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. Verse 5. Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore, or... But as for me, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. If we had the time to read all of Micah chapter 3 this morning, you would see material so similar, but yet expounded, that it would be a deja vu sort of experience. You would hear about prophets that are teaching for hire and perverting the word of God. You would hear about justices that are taking bribes and perverting justice in the land. You would hear about priests that are not teaching the law of God as they were told to do. You'd see materials so similar that you would realize that the nation of Israel at this time was a collapsing, corrupt society. And it really invites the question, chapter 3 and chapter 7 being so similar, why would God-inspired scripture appear to be so redundant? Why would a prophet like Micah cover the same sort of material twice in such a short amount of space? And as I considered this question, the thought struck me. This side of the coming kingdom of Christ, which is not here yet, God's people will almost always find themselves living in ruined, decaying societies. And so the Holy Spirit planned for this sort of content to appear over and over again because this is the sort of situation in which God's people are usually going to find themselves Old or New Testament. You see, Micah 7 is exactly the sort of situation that we will usually be in. You see, Christians, as we saw last night, we are sojourners. We are, we're looking for a better city, Hebrews 11. Peter tells us that we are chosen exiles. In other words, we're chosen by God and very precious to him, but yet we're also exiles on this earth. We're we're away from the coming kingdom of Christ. We're already citizens of that kingdom, but that kingdom is not here yet. And so to put this in Jesus' words, we are truly in this world, and he has not willed that we should be taken out of this world. So we're in this world, but yet we're not what? We're not of this world. This is why we have passages in the prophets and in Micah specifically that cover such similar material about the collapse of society and about living among corrupt people. Since these are the situations that almost always face God's people. Friends, we must learn to understand these sorts of situations and we must learn to live in these societies in a way that is still pleasing to God. 
And so this morning, let's consider a sermon entitled, Living in a Corrupt Society. Living in a Corrupt Society. And as we consider living in a corrupt society, would you consider uh, four statements with me this morning? The first three are simply observations about how corrupt a society can be. The last statement is a call to action. It's how the righteous should live in such a corrupt situation. And so notice with me, number one this morning, that society can be so corrupt that the righteous may think they are alone. Society can be so corrupt that the righteous may think they are alone. I I trust you'll see this as we try to almost decipher verses 1 and 2 together because they are difficult. Woe is me, for I am as, there's a metaphor coming, when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man has perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. Imagine with me that you walk into the door of your house or your apartment, and you've worked a long shift. It was mandatory and unexpected overtime. You miss dinner, but when you walk into the house, you can smell the family specialty. I mean, you would know that smell anywhere. It's it's one of your favorites. It's that shredded barbecue chicken that your mom cooks in the crock pot. And full of anticipation, you go over to the crock pot and you lift the lid and guess what you find inside? You find a whole big batch of nothing. You see, your family has eaten it all. There's absolutely nothing left for you and you're hungry. That's a modern example of what's going on in verse 1. Micah's walking through a vineyard just after the time of harvest, as it were, and he expects to find leftovers in the field, but there's nothing. He can't find any fruit at all. Now the word as in verse 1 signals for us that this is a metaphor, and so Micah feels like someone would feel when they're expecting tasty fruit, but yet to their great disappointment, there's, there's nothing left. Well, why would he feel this way? Well, he tells us in verse 2, just as he searched for grapes and he found none to eat, he has also searched the land of Israel and he can't find any godly people. They've all perished, he says. Just as he searched for figs and couldn't find any, so he searched the land of Judah and he he cannot find anyone who's upright. That is, he cannot find anyone who is faithful to a covenant relationship with Yahweh. See, society is so corrupt that Micah feels like he's left completely alone. In fact, he's starting to think, I'm the only one left. Now, previously in Micah, he had just announced God's judgment in the previous chapter. And now he doesn't believe that anyone is left in Israel who actually believes Yahweh, who actually lives loyally in covenant relationship with him. He's searched the land and he's found nobody. For the whole Bible reader, it's almost impossible not to hear echoes of the episode between the Lord and Abraham where the Lord revealed to Abraham that he was about to destroy the city in judgment. And Abraham said to him, Far be it from you, O Lord, to to, to slay the righteous with the wicked, Genesis 18. And you remember the negotiation that took place, as it were, between Abraham and the Lord. He would not destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah if there could be found ten righteous people. 
But here in Micah, the prophet doesn't seem to believe that he could even find one. The prophet Jeremiah is just as pessimistic. He says in Jeremiah 5 verse 1, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, if you can find a man. If there be any that executes judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. See if you can just find one guy who's obeying the Lord. Do any of you need a cold room for sleeping? All right, my wife and I, we, we have to have a cold room for sleeping. Now, we want about 100 blankets on, right? But, but we want the room to be cold. And so we have this fan that is always on. It's on in every season of the year. It's on in the coldest nights. And a few weeks ago, I was walking across our bedroom late at night in the dark with bare feet. And I got my toes stuck on something sharp. I could hear the buzzing of the fan. And for a moment, frozen in time, I thought my toes were stuck in that fan. It's this horrible feeling. It's like, so this, what it, this is what it feels like to lose a digit. I'm about to be decapitated in the foot. And as it turns out, my toes were not actually stuck in the fan, but it was still an uncomfortable situation because my toes were stuck in one of these. The situation was not fun at all. But in actuality, it wasn't nearly as bad as I had first perceived it to be. Now, I want to be careful here. Because Micah is a true and godly prophet of Yahweh. Furthermore, every word of this prophetic book is inspired by God and it is completely true. But here it seems that what is inspired by God is a true prophet's pessimism towards Israel. You see, he's not the only prophet who ever thought that the situation was far worse than it really was. Do you remember how pessimistic that Elijah was during King Ahab's reign? He had just gotten news that Jezebel was going to try to execute him. And while the angel of the Lord was ministering to this depressed prophet, here's what he mutters back to the Lord in his depressed state. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They have thrown down thine altars. They have slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, and left. And they seek my life to take it away. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Micah's perspective in Micah 7 too? I searched Israel and I couldn't find anyone who was godly or upright. I mean, they're all just ready to catch one another in nets. They're just ready to, to rob one another and prey on one another. They're purely wicked. But back with Elijah, the Lord reminded him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah thought there were zero, but there were actually 7,000 who still love the Lord. See, my point this morning is not to say that the people of Israel were actually pretty righteous and that Micah was just overreacting to their sin and corruption. That's not what I'm saying. No, my point is that in the land of Israel, there was such widespread corruption that Micah felt as though he were the only one left who truly loved the Lord. 
And friends, it just wasn't true. It's never true. God always has his remnant of true believers. But fact is, times can get so dark that you just feel like you're alone. You just feel like there's nobody else who wants to follow the Lord. And in times like these, it's when God's people need to stick together. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Not only can society be so corrupt that the righteous may feel completely alone, but number two, society can be so corrupt that the righteous may even be hurt. Remember that Micah said in verse 2 that he felt like he was a prey getting hunted, and now notice what he says in verses 3 and 4. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward, meaning a bribe. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desires, so they wrap it up, the best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh, now shall be their perplexity. I don't know, do any of you guys, um, do any of you guys actually use your phones to make calls anymore? Any of you? Or is it just like texting, social media? I, I'm from the millennial generation. I think I'm one of the oldest millennials. And we don't talk on the phone, right? I, and so if, if, if my phone rings and the number is not in my contacts, I simply don't answer it. But about four or five years ago, before I got into this habit, I saw a 262 area code come up on my phone. That's my home area code. It was a Saturday afternoon. And so I thought maybe it was someone from church. And I answered it only to be boldly confronted by the man on the other line. He wanted to know why I had called someone he loved, an elderly person, trying to scam them out of money and personal information. I remember being shocked. Uh, sir, sir, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't even know what, you, what you're talking about. I've made zero phone calls today. And when he simply wouldn't let the matter rest and take my word for it, I said, look, dude... <laughs> I'm a pastor in this community, and I don't know what else to say. Someone else must have figured out some way to make it look like it was my number, but it wasn't me that was trying to scam your loved one. There was a pause on the phone. And he said, you're a pastor? Now, this is truly crazy, because I'm a Catholic priest. <laughs> Did you hear the joke about the Baptist pastor that tried to rob the Catholic priest's grandmother? Doesn't it? Anyway. Scammers, what can they do? They can actually like mirror your phone number and pretend to be you while they're trying to con someone else. They're so good at scamming that they'll try to steal from the naive or the elderly while pretending to be someone else. And it's so maddening. These people are masters at deception. They're skilled thieves. They're smart scam artists. It's kind of like what Micah is describing. In verse 3, he says that the people of Israel do evil very well. They do evil with great skill. Beyond this, he says they do evil with full gusto as well. They even use both hands for added force. And even further still, they, they do evil in tandem together. That is, they cooperate to defraud others. They are co-conspirators in their evil ways. Well, how does this work? Well, in verse 3, we see that a man of worldly esteem has an evil desire in his heart, and he's able to carry out that wrong desire without any earthly consequence because he can bribe the rulers of the city to look the other way or to pervert justice. You see, the law of Moses was crystal clear on this. 
If the leaders take bribes, then those who are truly in the right are never going to be able to get justice. You see, it's not the innocent people who resort to bribery, right? It's the guilty people who resort to bribery. And so a society that is built upon bribes is a society in which justice and righteousness are not going to prevail. It will be a society in which the righteous will get continually trampled. Listen to how Scripture warns against this. The law of Moses was clear. Thou shalt not pervert judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons. That is, show partiality. Neither take a gift that's a bribe. Because a bribe does blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. Furthermore, taking bribes is antithetical to who God is. Deuteronomy 10.17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible God, which regardeth not persons. That is, he doesn't show partiality and he does not take reward. He doesn't take bribes. That's who God is. And so notice how Micah describes these powerful men in this corrupt society. The strong men, the rulers, and the judges. They're all in cahoots to pervert justice through bribery. He says in verse 4, The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than the thorn hedge. Micah thinks the leaders of his society are about as pleasant as a thorn in the hand and about as useful as a briar in the rump. In fact, if you get involved with these guys, don't expect justice. Instead, expect to get hurt instead. If you have principles and you're not going to play the game at their level, then even engaging with them might bring you pain. You see, they're so good at evil that righteous people just end up as their victims caught in their thorny fangs. And so sadly, as we've seen or as we could see throughout Micah, this was a society that was built upon bribes and even perverted scales. And when this sort of thing happens in a society, the righteous cannot fully bank on the structures of society to have their back. You see, even governmental leaders will become just as likely to stab them as anyone else. And so not only can a society become so corrupt that the righteous may feel alone, and that the righteous may end up getting hurt, but notice, number three, that society can become so corrupt that the righteous may not be able to trust anyone. Look at verses five and six. Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom, for the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now when Micah says, put no trust in a friend or a neighbor, he's not talking about ultimate trust that's reserved for God alone. Okay, that would be kind of Captain Obvious. As the second line makes clear, he's talking about having practical confidence in someone. Being able to count on them, as we would say in the normal course of life. And so society was so corrupt that the sacred bond that should exist between the closest of human relationships, this bond had all but disappeared. The second line of verse 4, The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh now shall be their perplexity. This describes the beginning of God's judgment upon Judah, with their enemies taking some of their cities and breathing down their necks and possibly even laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. And during this time of intense national pressure, emergency, and chaos, 
the people should have been able to turn to their closest relationships. But instead, the fabric of their society had been eroding for so long that in this moment of pressure, they literally had nobody to trust. Micah says that they shouldn't trust a neighbor, even though the law of Moses taught this about our neighbors. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. But they couldn't count on anyone else to actually obey that command towards them. Micah's already said that they're just as likely to set a snare for you or hunt you down than they are to actually love you like they love themselves. Sadly, Micah says that they shouldn't, love their, they shouldn't trust their friends either during this time, even though the Proverbs present this model of loyalty, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity, for exactly the sort of moment that the people of God were facing in Micah chapter 7. And so not only could a man not trust his friends, but he can't trust his own wife. Instead, in this corrupt society, a husband should be careful about what he says to the one who is lying in his arms. For those of you that enjoy good and loving marriages, can you think of a safer place to share something personal or confidential than in the quietness of the night as you hold your spouse? I can't think of any safer place. But this society was so corrupt that spouses could not trust each other. And the same goes for parents and their children. Look at Exodus 20, verse 2. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Honor thy father and thy mother. But instead of honoring and caring for parents, in Micah's days, parents couldn't count on their children because they would treat them with contempt and stand against them and try to exploit them instead. And so Micah looks at his society and he says, it seems like there's nobody to trust, nobody to count on, not even the closest of human relationships, not your neighbor, not your best friend, not your children, not even your spouse. Can you even imagine a society like the one that Micah describes in these verses? Can you imagine living in a context where everywhere you turn, it seems like nobody else follows the Lord? Can you imagine a society in which you are bombarded by so much evil on a regular basis that if you are not careful, you may develop this same depressed prophet syndrome? You'll either do a full-on Elijah and say, I'm the only one left and I want to die, or you'll do the, the lighter version, Micah, and you'll say, there's nobody left but me. Have you ever been there? When it seems like the collective world is literally losing its mind with its incessant calling good evil and calling evil good. And maybe you know that there's more than just you, but maybe you think, well, there's not enough of us left to even matter. Remember, Israel was a theocracy, and so their politics and their religion were combined. Their society and their religious expression was all bound up into one. And so if the nation was corrupt, so was its worship. I wonder, do you ever look around and think, there's just so few good churches left, we're the only ones following the Lord. Can you imagine living in a society where you can't trust governmental officials to actually care about true justice? Can you imagine living in a world where oftentimes the righteous person gets prosecuted or sued or imprisoned while the unrighteous people are literally getting away with murder? 
Can you imagine living in a world where people are skilled at doing evil, they're enthusiastic about it, and they're even networking together to make it happen? Like a world in which the greatest technology that the world has ever seen and all this equipment, it gets harnessed, but it's harnessed to broadcast graphic sexual images into our homes. Like a world in which medical equipment and skilled doctors who have great understanding of the human body, but they misuse both in order to murder babies in their mother's wombs. Can you imagine a world in which it sometimes doesn't even pay, sometimes, to involve the local authorities because some of them aren't going to care and they might even end up hurting you instead of those who harmed you? Again, since Israel's spiritual and religious life was a unified whole, it's right for us to make application to church leadership as well. Can you imagine a world where people are hurt by some so-called churches that enable abusers and set up cultures of control and manipulation? Can you imagine living in a society where the family itself is crumbling? A society in which parents are willing to kill their own children and then act shocked that their children kill each other. A society of domestic violence, a society of cheap divorce, a society in which husbands and wives are not loyal to each other, a society in which parents don't, uh, children don't respect their parents and parents don't spend time with their children, a society where true friendship is rare, a society in which people don't know the names of their neighbors, Can you even imagine a society like this? You see, the situation in Micah's time is not different from ours completely. And so what should the righteous do when society is growing this corrupt? Micah tells us. He tells us in verse 7. And his message is just as relevant to us today as we follow the same Lord thousands of years later, number four, when society is corrupt, the righteous must wait for Yahweh to act. When society is corrupt, the righteous must wait for Yahweh to act. Look at verse seven with me. Therefore, or we could understand that as, but as for me, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, I fully expect verse 7 to be disappointing to some of you. That's what we're supposed to do in the midst of an ungodly society? I mean, especially in this age of activism where everyone wants to have a cause, I could see verse 7 as being extremely disappointing to you. I'm supposed to look to the Lord? I'm supposed to wait? Do you like to be told to wait when you're facing a hard situation? In fact, if a counselor tells you you need to wait, chances are you're going to get on what I call the counselor merry-go-round. You're going to go find another counselor. And then they're going to tell you this is a season of waiting. And you're going to say, I don't want to do that. And you go find another counselor. It's the counselor merry-go-round. No one likes to be told to wait during a hard time. Now, I'm not against movements or causes or activism. Hear me clearly. With these caveats. If they're done for righteous causes based on clear biblical thinking and carried out with kindness and respect. I'm not against activism, causes, or movements. Christians are to be salt and light. 
But organizing a movement to try to take back society was not Micah's response. He says, I will look to the Lord. He says, I will wait. You see, his words reflect a deep confidence in a God who is control, who is in control. His words flow from a heart that believes God and hopes that God will act at the appropriate time. His words should remind us of the Psalms. For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear, O Lord my God. I will wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. But notice that as Micah lives in a corrupt society, looking for the Lord to act, waiting for him to intervene, as he does this, Micah does not have to personally participate in any of the wickedness around him. He can walk in his own integrity no matter what others are doing. He says, and we could translate the beginning of verse 7, but as for me, indicating that his manner of life will be different than everyone else's around him. You see, others may betray both friend and justice, but Micah will love his neighbor. He will, Micah chapter 6, 8, he will do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with his God. Others may excel at doing evil, but he will aim to excel at pleasing the Lord. And this is not the only time when Micah utters one of these, but as for me sayings in his book. He says, but truly, or but as for me, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. I am full of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So the other prophets were wicked, but Micah didn't have to be. The false prophets told lies, but Micah could tell the truth. The false prophets were filled by a motivation for greed, but Micah was filled by the Spirit of God, and he stared down his wicked generation, and he said, you do what you will, but as for me. And if you've read the Bible for five minutes, these words are so familiar. Joshua 24, verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The psalmist says in Psalm 26, 9 through 11, gather not my soul with sinners nor my life with bloody men in whose hands is mischief and their right hand is full of bribes, but as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Students, no matter how dark the times, no matter how wicked the world, no matter how deep the corruption runs, God's people can stand and say, but as for me. You see, Micah did not have the power to control or change the situation, but he could walk in his own personal integrity. And friends, please hear me. At the very most important level, your integrity cannot be taken. It can only be given away. And so not only did Micah wait on the Lord to act and refuse to participate in the evil of his age, but notice that he also seems to treasure his personal relationship with God in the midst of all of this. Like everything is swirling around him and he is still locked in and focused on knowing Yahweh. He says in verse 7, Therefore, or but as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, My God, he will hear me. 
He seems to draw more and more confidence for living from the reality that Yahweh is his God. And Yahweh is the God of his salvation. And that Yahweh will hear his prayers. Believers in Christ, what a sweet privilege that we have when the world is spiraling into deeper sin and even more rampant unbelief to know that the God of heaven is our God and he is our Father and he delights in our prayers and we can come to him at any time and he invites us to come. And in the darkest of times, this must be our treasure. We draw our greatest comfort from our close and personal relationship with him. And so what are we going to do with this ancient passage? My guess is that you've probably not heard many sermons on the prophet Micah before. It's not the most popular book in the Bible. But yet it delivers a powerful punch for this particular moment that we are living in. What are we going to do with these words? What's our takeaways? I've got a couple takeaways for you as we reflect on Micah from this side of the cross. Number one this morning, and I probably should have taken off Lakewood lesson, forgive me for that. MBU lesson, since our society is corrupt, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Are you saddened by the decay in our own society? I hardly need to chronicle the corruption for you. I've done some of that already. You realize that some within a previous generation of Christians thought that they could transform society through political activism? The story of the moral majority is a story of a failed strategy that was fueled by sincere motives. Friends, what this world ultimately needs, ultimately, It's not for Christians to lead boycotts or to hire lobbyists or to get the right people in office. Yes, there's a place for being salt and light and we need Christians in government and we should vote and we should influence and I get all of that and I support all of that and at a certain level, I'm involved in all of that. But the ultimate solution for a corrupt society is the gospel of Jesus Christ or the return of Jesus Christ. You see, some level of evil can be held back and restrained in a society through legislation and the enforcement of laws. But the transformation that we're truly after, it can only come from the inside out. It can only come when the Holy Spirit changes someone from within. And the Holy Spirit does this when and only when people receive the gospel. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. But people are not going to receive the gospel unless we preach it. How then will they hear without a preacher? And so if you want to see the best and ultimate kind of change in society, then preach the good news of Jesus. And as the gospel is received through repentance and faith in Christ, then people who used to be zealous for their sin and really good at it, they will become zealous for good works and really good at those. And people who used to betray neighbor will start to love neighbor instead. And people who used to be unfaithful to spouse will start to love their wives, not just in some generic way, but as Christ loved the church. You see how this works? And as the gospel is received by more and more people, then their lives truly change, and they change from the inside out. So if you want to see societal change, preach the gospel. Number two, 
since our society is corrupt, demonstrate what spirit-produced righteous living looks like? Do you realize that the corruption and the decay all around us, it forms this dark canvas against which the brightness of a Christian life can shine so brilliantly? In other words, in the midst of all the decay around you, show people what following Jesus looks like. Not a life of self-righteousness, but a life that the Holy Spirit is transforming from the inside out, motivated by the gospel and the grace of God to look like this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. For example, in a dishonest society, Christian, you can be a person of integrity in all your dealings. In a world full of bribery, As you graduate and you go out into the business world, don't let someone else show you special favors if you become rich or powerful or influential. Don't ever award a contract because of kickbacks or privileges. If you have influence, use it for justice and use it for righteous causes. Be faithful in your relationships. Do not betray neighbor. Be loyal to your friends. Love your parents. Be faithful to your spouse. This is just Christianity 101. It's so normal. It's so ordinary inside the family of God. But do you know what it is out there? It is head-turning. And now more than ever, basic, normal, everyday Christianity can be powerfully attractive in the midst of a society that is collapsing. And so Jesus taught his followers, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's not primarily a verse about evangelism. That's a verse about living a righteous life in the eyes of a lost world. Demonstrate what a spirit-produced righteous life looks like. Number three, since our society is corrupt and since Christ divides family members, prioritize spiritual relationships in the family of God. In a group of people this large, there are doubtless individuals in this room this morning that feel the relationship dysfunction of verses five and six. And it's because of the corruption that's in the society, yes. But more than that, it's because they follow Christ and their family has rejected them because of it. Remember how Christ prepared his disciples for this sort of cost for following him. He prepared them for this. He even quotes Micah 7 as he does it. He says, think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. In other words, if you trust me, you're going to get enemies in your household. You'll not be able to trust them. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Some in this room feel as though they have lost someone close to them, a family member, because they have chosen Christ instead. I talked to a young man this week who was put in a situation where a girlfriend in his life made him choose her or Jesus. He chose Jesus. 
These situations are very real. But some of that sting of relational loss can be taken away when we realize that the church is the family of God. It is the household of God. And Jesus says that those who do the will of His Father, these are family. And so if you're in a situation where you feel like your family, your physical, biological family, has turned on you and it's because of Jesus, oh, then find a larger family in the work of God and love them and invest in them and hold them dear. Fourth and last, since our society is corrupt... Look for the return of Christ who will eventually bring the kingdom. You see, his kingdom is the perfect society. And Jesus is the only perfect king. He's the leader that our hearts long for. He's the leader and the king that this world needs. Micah waited for the Lord. Micah looked for the Lord to act. And friends, in the midst of this time of societal decay, we must do the same. That's the name of the school. Maranatha, Lord, come. We look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, please take these words, plant them deep in our hearts. Use them to shape and fashion us for your glory. Lord, they, these are dark times that we live in, and we recognize that. Lord, help us to understand the dark times. Help us to purpose that we need not be involved in any of the sin of the, of the age. Help us to live with our integrity. Help us to long for you and to wait for you and to pursue you even in these times. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.